following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. This world in which we live can be a very frightening place. I imagine some of you children and young people were quite frightened in some of the thunderstorms we've had in the last couple of weeks, particularly when that thunder clasp is right over your bedroom and the house really literally shakes. You're filled with dread. Uh, it's, it's, it's an awful place from the perspective of awful power that is in uh, this world. In fact, so powerful that ancient pagans divinized the world. And uh, they turned the world itself into uh, a divine being. Now today, people have kind of insulated themselves from the terrors of creation, um, looking at it through a microscope or behind the computer screen. But put that person out in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night, by himself, and he will be full of dread. Or put him in the midst of a wild, impetuous sea. Or in a thunderstorm. And his heart will be filled with dread and fear. That's what the creation does. But not for us. Not for God's sons and daughters. Rather, God wants you to look at the creation as a revelation of himself. He's placarding himself to you. And that's what Job is showing us here in chapter 26. Job 26 is the final speech in the cycle of the dialogues that we've been examining in the book of Job. We looked last week at Bildad's speech, a very simple few verses, where he says two very important things about the majesty of God. He deals with the sovereign dominion of God. He deals with the transcendence of God. But he ends in hopelessness. Because he's trying to silence Job. He couldn't answer the questions about Job being sinful. He has refuted all their arguments. So now, because Job has pleaded for a vindication with God for his righteousness, not for an acceptance with God, but that he is God's child and servant, Bildad attacks him uh, as if he's trying to, to make himself acceptable to God. And at the end of the day, he comes up only with hopelessness and despair. So Job now is responding to that. He said, in a sense, yes, you've said some... Uh, true things about God, but you've not gone to the right place. We'll see more of that in just a minute. And so what Job wants to do is to direct us uh, to the majesty of God, not to bring us to a place of hopelessness, but to bring us a place of uh, fear and trust. And so what I want to show you uh, in these verses is that uh, through creation, God reveals to us his majesty that we may fear him and trust him. Through creation, God reveals to us his majesty that we may fear him and trust him. And we'll unpack that statement under three headings. The majesty of God misapplied, the majesty of God rightly understood, and the majesty of God rightly applied. Well, in the first four verses... The Spirit through Job opens up to us the majesty of God misapplied. 
And Job does so with a, a series of sarcastic statements. Now, this is kind of the height. He's expressed sarcasm in chapter 9, uh, again, uh, right before here. But he's kind of at wit's end at this point. He has silenced their arguments. He silenced them. And Bildad comes back and, and simply uh, says these few things about God. And, you know, he's just doing nothing to help Job in all of his pain. You remember the first line is simply the way the spirit keeps the dialogue going. Then Job answered is actually the literal. But look at verses two to four. Four sarcastic exclamations. What a help you are to the weak. How you have saved the arm without strength. What counsel you've given to one without wisdom. What helpful insight you have abundantly provided. In these two verses, Job is opening up again his need. He's describing himself. He is the one who is weak. He is the one who has no power, whose arm is without strength. He is the one who is ignorant of the way of God. He doesn't have wisdom. He doesn't know what in the world God is doing in his life. But he speaks out of that pain, weakness, and ignorance by simply showing Bildad and the others through him that they have done him no good. They've had no help. They in no way have saved him. They've come as friends, but uh, they had no help. Uh, they, they couldn't give him right counsel. All they did was accuse him and, and increasingly per- paint a picture of him that was completely unrealistic and in no way helped him deal with his physical pain, his mental pain and suffering, his grief, his loss, and above all, that awful feeling of separation that Job had. Where was God? He had walked with God. He had been intimate with God. And so these four exclamations exposes Bildad um, and through Bildad the friends as simply coming and are useless counselors. He brings it to a head now in verse 4 with two rhetorical questions. To whom have you uttered words and whose spirit was expressed through you? In the first question he's saying, Who in the world were you speaking to? Were you speaking to this godly man that you've known for years, has walked with God, has worshipped and served God? Uh, No, you've assumed that uh, I'm a wicked sinner. And and thus, they they haven't spoken to Job. They're not spoken to Job in his need. They've spoken right past Job. In fact, not only speaking past him, but furthering his pain and sorrow which he expresses in the second question, and whose spirit was expressed through you. They claim to be speaking of the words of God. The spirit of God, they claim, would be speaking to them. At one time, one of them calls upon God to bear witness against Job. But Job says, you weren't speaking through the spirit of God. There's a strange spirit in you. It was a spirit of pride, of arrogance. In fact, at the end of the day, It was the spirit of Satan, wasn't it? We've seen that uh, the very things they said were actually part of Satan's temptation to Job. Bring him to despair. Curse God and die. Because there were no answers. He knew that he wasn't a wicked person. And so he's been cast off. And so curse God and die. 
Now, what Job is doing here, remember, this is a dialogue. And so you can, you can paint, you know, link the sections. He's obviously responding. He answers and says to Bildad's self-righteous description of sovereignty and transcendence, which was true, but misapplied. Bildad and his friends like counselors, his counselors are like the one that Solomon describes in Proverbs 27. Like the legs which are useless to the lame, so was a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like a thorn which falls into the hand of a drunkard, so was a proverb in the mouth of fools. They were fools. Uh, they had no help in them whatsoever. And that was true because in the first place, uh, they weren't speaking to the man in front of them. In the second place, they were speaking out of arrogance and pride um, as people who thought they had all the answers. Now, I've said this before, but I want you to understand that you know, these men had basically a good grasp of who God is. They simply applied it wrongly. What I want you to see here is, is that good, good doctrine wrongly applied is just simply false doctrine. Good doctrine... Wrongly applied is false doctrine. See, it's not enough that you and I can store up uh, all this stuff in our heads and memorize the catechism and, and uh, think that's the end of the day. No, if it doesn't percolate into our hearts, if it doesn't affect our lives, then it, as Paul would say, knowledge simply puffs up. I want you to think about this uh, in a couple of, of scenarios. As parents... You see, that the two things that are wrong here is that they didn't take into account to whom they were speaking. They didn't then rightly apply the word of God. And as parents, we have to be aware of that. We, we cannot treat our children as if they all came out of the same mold. Uh, they're very different by God's sovereignty. And thus, in discipline and, and rearing our children, we must approach them in terms of think of to whom you're speaking. You cannot deal with Peter the way you dealt with Anne. You must know your children and direct your discipline toward them. I think, as a parent, I wish I had realized more of that. Uh, And as Ted says, to learn then to get to their heart. It's actually true of us as husbands as well, isn't it? That um, you come in from work and we really haven't considered to whom we're speaking when she begins to complain about her day, and uh, we can respond very wrongly, not putting ourselves in her shoes and thinking about, yeah, I can see why you're like that. It must be that way, and we've seen this, through Job, as counselors. Is that we come along somebody, we must first off listen and discern. Who is this person? Where is he? Is she a weak Christian who needs to be dealt with uh, in one way? Is he a stronger Christian that uh, can take uh, a more uh, uh, forceful and, and didactic approach from Scripture? And then speak the word that is sufficient for the moment from a heart of humility. And then I want to apply this, and Calvin does this, and Carol does as well, two remarkable sections on applying this, these three verses to preaching. This shows you men who will preach that you must always keep in mind the congregation before you. Not the one you imagine. That means you must know them. You have to be in their home and visit them. 
but you also then, as you speak truth, you must speak truth that is applied in a discriminating fashion. This is why we speak of discriminatory application. You're not just throwing truth out hoping it's going to stick to the wall. You must know your hearers. I often hear sermons, and a man's trying to apply the sermon, but he's really saying the same thing week after week. No, you must say what your congregation needs, and it must come out of that word. And if you do that, it's going to be very varied. It's not going to be a, a sameness to it. And so we need to uh, be careful to speak to those before us and to speak with discrimination. Because you know what happens is the, the most tender consciences in the congregation always the one who are going to take to heart the sternest reproofs. And they're not for them. And you've got to distinguish that. Just as we'll say things to children that are not for adults. To adults are not for children, for an unconverted person, who, and to a Christian, and to the whole different types of struggles that we have. And so, uh, as preachers, we must learn to develop this facility of discriminatory application. Otherwise, we'll be like Bildad and the friends, and we will misapply the majesty of God. Well, that brings us then to the correct understanding of the majesty of God, the, the majesty of God properly uh, developed, and we have this in verses 5 through 13. Now, boys and girls, imagine, not the Disney, but the real old fable, Aladdin's magic carpet, because God's going to put you now on a magic carpet. He's going to take you to hell and to heaven, to that which is invisible and that which is visible. He's going to take all of us in this very rapid survey of creation to do one thing, to unfold to us a number of God's attributes that he reveals in creation. Now, he begins in a very difficult place. It's a place that he created, but it's invisible to us. And that is, he begins in hell, in verses 5 and 6. The departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants, naked as Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. The word for departed spirits is a word that means uh, soulless people. Uh, it is bodiless people who are living. This is uh, uh, the Rephaim is the word that is used. Um, Solomon in Proverbs 2.18 speaks about the adulterer going to the place of her house. They sink down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. And it's this word, to the bodiless uh, inhabitants of hell. That's the Rephaim. God now is directing our attention to uh, this place that is inscrutable. And thus he says in verse 5b, it, it's under the waters and their inhabitants. Now God, this is poetry through here. I mean, you'll see it in the other descriptions as well. God is not saying that hell is literally under the sea. But it is more difficult to discover than the depths of the sea, which are still greatly undiscovered, or great sea monsters that might live in the depths of the sea. And so uh, this is one way the Bible teaches us. It's a bottomless pit. We go down to hell and such as that, that there is a place. It is um, a created something in this sphere, created on the six days of creation, because God ceased to work with creation, at that point, knowing full well what he would do um, with mankind that rebelled against him. But even though it is uh, 
for us, an inscrutable, invisible place. Notice in verse 6, naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. Now here we see that he really is talking about hell, the Rephaim who are in hell. In the Old Testament, Sheol has two primary meanings. It can be the grave, but not simply the grave. The grave is punishment. And because of that, it leads into hell as the permanent place of punishment. And so uh, Job is saying that uh, uh, hell is naked before God. In other words, he thoroughly knows it, and he thoroughly knows the heart of all who were there. He continues that Abaddon has no covering. Now, Abaddon has to do both with the destroyer himself and the place of destruction. Revelation 9-11, God describes the devil. He's the prince of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, Apollyon. Abaddon is the destroyer. And this is the place of the destroyer who stands guard over it. And yet he's under the power of God, you see. The devil is powerful. He is uh, the king of hell, so to speak. Uh, But God knows it thoroughly. And we see the relation here of omniscience to justice. When he says that naked is shield before him, Abaddon has no covering. He's saying he knows exactly every creature who's there and all that that person has done, angel or man. And thus, out of omniscience comes justice. God only deals with us according to justice. And the soul that sins dies. It's pointing to man death and after that judgment. And it's very important that we understand that hell, about which we don't think a great deal, is a real place, a created place, a place known perfectly to God. And so God is present in hell. Some people think that well, God's absent. No, his gracious presence is not in hell, but his just presence, his punishing presence. So when it says here that the departed spirits tremble, they're trembling in soul anguish under the punishment of God. And that will only increase when the body is raised and they are in hell, body and soul, as complete persons. And so he begins here to show us God's omniscience and God's justice. And if God knows the depths of Sheol, then what Job is implying is that he also then knows your heart. He knew Job's heart. He knew everything about him. He knows everything about you. There's no place in you of which God is ignorant. And so he sets before us with this description of hell, the justice of God, but also the omniscience of God. Well, we leave hell and we come up into the air above us. He ascends into the heavens. Now, in the Bible, the Bible describes heaven in three ways. There is heaven, and that's the immediate atmosphere around us. There are heavens, and that is the universe. And then there is the third heaven, or the highest heaven, and that is the throne room of God himself. Now, in verses 7 through 9, Job describes something about God's majesty from each of these spheres with which we have some familiarity. Now, in verse 7, he goes to the mid-level heavens. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. 
Now remember, this is poetry. It's not to be a, a scientific treatise. But it tells us so much. So the north here refers to the North Star. Because living in the northern hemisphere, that would have been the center, uh, uh, the axle, so to speak, the axis of all the other stars. And so it's, it's a figure, it's the part put for the whole. And what, what Job is telling us here is that God, by his power, has stretches out the north, all the stars, over empty space. Now, here he has in mind, and we're going to see this, he has in mind both days two and four of creation. In the first place, in day two, God stretches out these heavens. And in day four, he puts the inhabitants in these heavens. And Job, with this very simple sentence, is uh, speaking of both of these things. And so he has created the universe. He's put everything in its place um, and holds it there, preserves it there, governs it there. And thus, when you look at the heavenly bodies, you are to think of God's power and sovereignty and wisdom. The wisdom of God. That everything is a perfect clock that never, ever will go wrong. Everything in every orbit throughout billions of universes. All as we read there in Isaiah Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars, the one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. And not one of them is missing. Remarkable. Also, as he speaks here, he then speaks of the earth, not from our perspective on the earth, but from God's perspective of the earth. And he says, not only did God put all of these things in heaven. But here's the earth itself, the center of God's activities. And he says that he hangs the earth on nothing. Now, here's probably an allusion to day one of creation, where he made all things, heaven and earth, and it was formless. It was nothing at this point as God begins this process of making the earth Uh, But even more to the point, isn't that amazing? There's all kinds of attempts to explain this with gravity and orbits. But who made gravity? Who made orbits? I mean, Job has done here what an astronaut can do. Our magic carpet has taken us up into the higher heavens, and we're looking at the earth. And it just hangs there. It doesn't fall. Everything falls, right? Throw a ball up, what happens? It comes down. That's gravity, but not the earth. No, God has hung it on nothing. Just a glorious thing to think about. Again, his power, his strength that is manifested. And then he comes down to our immediate atmosphere in verse 8. He speaks of one wonder. We sang of it, or dealt with it in our prayer. He wraps up the waters in his clouds And the cloud does not burst under them. And that's pretty much as amazing as the earth hanging empty space. We've had a lot of clouds lately. And all those clouds are simply water. And it's powerful. Been in an airplane, you go through a cloud, there's a lot of strength in that cloud, in that water. But is it not amazing that God by his own power causes the water to stay there? 
until he bursts the cloud in the place he wants to and sends water to the earth. He does so in grace. He does so in judgment. And yet he's the one who manifests, again, sovereign power simply in thinking about a rain cloud. But now the magic carpet goes to the other invisible place. In verse 9, he takes us to the highest heaven. The New American Standard, I think, uh, does not get this correctly. He obscures the face of the full moon, and he spreads his clouds over it. And you look at the New American Standard, and you'll see covers his throne. And the word Hebrew word here is better translated throne. So as we, he takes us up to the other invisible place, at the other extreme of God's work of creation, he is reminding us that there is another created place that we call heaven, also made uh, during the six days of creation, and that God has a throne there. And what that means is that God's gracious, glorious, beautiful presence is manifested there above all places. And the triune God is enthroned, and our Savior, as the God-man, is enthroned with uh, the Father and the Son, uh, Spirit on this throne, ruling all things. And this is the throne that Job wanted to come to, but he understands that God has obscured it. We can't see it. You know, Job will see something of God. Paul, I guess, is the only man that ever living went there, came back, and he couldn't talk about it. So God has, in one sense, obscured the the glories of heaven from us until we then go to heaven. He is indeed transcendent. He is indeed all-powerful. But even as we read of his obscuring his throne, we understand that though Job thought it was impenetrable, he eventually got there. And we, through the Lord Jesus Christ, come to the throne of God. We don't see anything, but we come boldly. That Bildad did not allow us to do. We come boldly into God's presence to praise and worship him and to bring our confession and our petitions uh, to him. And we enter the throne room. And it's hard to enter our minds that in corporate worship above all places, this is why this is so important, that we come into the special presence of God in a greater way than the old covenant church entered his presence at the temple. In a sense, we've levitated. In some mysterious way, we are enthroned with Christ right now. And this then speaks to you of how you worship and how you listen to God speaking to you through his word because we are in the throne room. And, and because of that, we should esteem worship above every other privilege that we have on the earth. But here God shows us his transcendence by clouding over his throne. Well, he comes now to earth itself, and he approaches the earth to show us two things about himself. Uh, In the first place, this remarkable power of God uh, in the seas and the dry land. In verse 10, he has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Now, the circle here simply has to do with the boundary, the boundary of the sea. Now, we've talked about this already. 
And it is absolutely, in a sense, a physical impossibility that the sea does not cover all the earth. But on day three, God separated the sea from the dry land, and God himself is the boundary. Job here anticipates what God will say in chapter 38. I place boundaries on it, set a bolt and doors, and I said, thus far you should come and no farther. Here your proud waves shall stop. Yeah, there's mountains, there's rocks, but a lot of it's sand. Sand. You stand there, and it comes so far and no farther. Yes, there's floods here and there by God's uh, appointment. Never again will he flood the whole earth, and that comes to the next thing. Uh, The best way to understand the last part of that verse, the boundary of light and darkness, is the end. So go back to Genesis 8. The present earth is going to last in its present state until there's no more day and night. God is changeless. He's immutable. And thus, he's keeping this promise by his own power and strength, separating the dry land from the sea. And he speaks more about the sea then. Um, well, first, he speaks about the dry land and then the sea. So in, in verse 11, he speaks more about the dry land. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. Now, pillars here could be the earth itself, but more than likely, the mountains, which you can just kind of get the poetry again. So here are the mountains, and it's not Atlas that holds up uh, the world, nor is it the mountains, it's the power of God, and the mountains holding it up are just a picture of that power. And mountains, indeed, are great things, as pillar of the heavens. But what does God do to mountains? Well, you see what he says. They tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. Even today in Hawaii, there is this awful volcano. We had the privilege of sitting there a few years ago, and we actually sat out there for about six hours and just watched the, the lava come down and then go into the sea and, and make rocks. Uh, God is causing the earth to tremble. Every time there's an earthquake, every time there's a volcano, God is causing the earth to melt like wax at times. It is to tremble. And here again we see his might, his power. You and I cannot do that. Only God can cause the mountains to quake and tremble. Either by his personal presence at Mount Sinai, but he does it through his providence. One other aspect then of this environment, this earth, is the sea. In verse 12, he quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. Um, And it could be he stirred up the sea, Uh, with his power. Um, And the reference here is the fact that God creates storms at the sea, and then he quiets them as well. He shatters Rahab, and Rahab will become a picture of Egypt and proud people, but it's initially the idea of the sea raging. And the raging sea is a sign of proud contempt. And what he's saying is that God is the one who can stir up the sea, God is the one who stills the sea, and of course, boys and girls, of whom do you think? Who commanded the sea to be still? Yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stirred up the storm in the first place, that he might show his power, and then he stills the sea. So we've gone from the invisible to the invisible, and we've seen in the process the three heavens 
and three things about the earth where we live. But there's one more thing he wants to show us on our little tour, uh, and that's the beauty of God. Don't forget the beauty of God. Our God is beautiful. And so he does this in verse 13. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Now, I think the new King James gets this much better. By his spirit, he adorns the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, whom we also find at creation on day one, and now active on day four. And what the Spirit is doing, and you can think of garnishing. So you, you have a nice dinner, and then you put some garnish around the plate to make it even more attractive. We see the Spirit is the completer of the Trinity. He's the completer of creation. He's the completer of salvation. And he's making things beautiful. He preserves them, and he makes them beautiful. He makes us beautiful in Christ Jesus. And he gives one example of it, and that is he pierces the fleeing serpent. Now, the fleeing serpent or the fleeing dragon can be translated in both ways. It's a constellation of some 80 stars. And Job is using this one constellation. He's already spoken about the constellations. This one constellation to show how the Spirit can pierce, strike through, separate, garnish the heavens with these constellations, which are glorious manifestations of the work of God. And so on this quick tour, just think about all the attributes that Job has identified in creation with omniscience and justice and sovereignty and power and, and wisdom uh, and, and, and beauty. But it brings him then to his conclusion. We've seen majesty misapplied and majesty rightly developed, but now we want to see majesty applied. And that is in verse 14. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. How faint a word we hear of him. Mighty is his thunder, but who can understand? Now, we've seen a lot here, haven't we, about God's attributes. And Job says, all you have seen is the outer limits of who God is. Much is seen, but you've seen only the outer limits. Is heard, poetically speaking, although we'll talk in a bit about what we hear through Scripture, but it's but a faint word, this revelation of God. And so the, the kind of the wrapped up attribute we have here is incomprehensibility. Even if Job has spoken poetically and vividly and accurately about many of God's attributes, he says, I haven't begun to learn. I'm in kindergarten. God is incomprehensible. He's incomprehensible. And that means then we must fear him. I don't normally quote, but this quotation from Calvin about this verse, could we do greater dishonor to God than to want to enclose his power in our finite minds? He's building here on a, even a medieval concept, the finite cannot apprehend or hold the infinite. It would be like a man wanting to hold both the sea and the land in his fist or between two fingers. It is madness beyond belief for the heavens and the earth are not as great as the righteousness, the power, the wisdom, the goodness which are in God. For they are 
are but small indications of who he is. Small indications of who he is. And so we're humbled, which means we fear him. He's God. He's the infinite, triune, glorious God. Yes, manifested in all these attributes that we might fear him, which means we might trust him then. You see? Now we get back to Job's problem. Remember? He's weak. He has not an arm of strength. And he has no wisdom. As he's come here to talk about God, even though God is incomprehensible, what Job has found in this whisper, this fringe, is strength and hope and wisdom for his life. And that's what comes when we rightly understand God's majesty. So, in summary, through creation, God reveals to us his majesty that we may fear him and trust him. We've seen the danger of majesty wrongly applied. We've seen something here of what God shows us in creation. And we're brought to kneel before him. Three very important lessons. In the first place, consider the importance of the doctrine of creation. Job at least touches directly on four days of creation. And by implication on making man, because it's only because we are in God's image, that we can read the creation. That's how important creation is. And we need to remember that. We need to defend the doctrine. We also, in our defense of the doctrine, must not get so caught up that we don't love the reality. What it teaches us about our God. So that we worship and adore him. And so, again, boys and girls, sometimes school gets a bit irksome for you. But you know what you're doing, really? You're studying God. You're studying God in science, you're studying God in math, you study God in history because there is what God has done in his providence. And so I want you to always think about your schoolwork as a privilege to study God and thus give yourself to it. Whatever his calling is in your life, that you're going to learn more about God so you can worship and serve him. Which leads to the second thing, and that is we can know him. Yes, he's incomprehensible. But by natural revelation, Job and all of our fathers from Adam uh, until uh, Moses began to write scripture knew a great deal about God, didn't they? And, And Paul tells us in Romans 1 that even the natural man can know God's divinity, his power, his invisibility. How much more the regenerate has known, yes, fringes only, but then we live in the day of scripture. And so we have two advantages, maybe three. Well, yes, three. The first is, Scripture, as Calvin says, are the eyeglasses by which we look at general revelation. You see, we know when Job says these things about God, we can put names on them. He doesn't put names on them. Uh, Bildad does. But we can put names there because we recognize that the Bible is showing us these attributes uh, and how they're revealed in creation. Which brings us to the second thing, and that is the Bible is the full revelation of all we need to know about God in this life and to serve him well. And, of course, the most precious part is it's through the Bible that you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the full revelation of God, as Paul will write in our passage we read in the New Testament. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of 
of Christ Jesus. Your Savior revealed in the Gospels is this glorious revelation of God. And right before this, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that by the Spirit, as you gaze on his face, as he's revealed in Scripture, you actually are transformed from glory to glory in his image. You become more like him. And so we can know God, and it should be our passion and desire above all else to know him. Revealed in creation, but above all revealed in Scripture and in Christ. Which brings us to the great comfort that Job had, and I hope it's yours as well. That uh, he still, none of the mystery has been explained at this point. You understand that. He had no confidence it would ever be explained. In fact, God never explains it really, does he? No. And what we learn there is that, yes, life is full of mysteries, inexplicabilities, incomprehensible acts of God's providence, and the loss of a child, or the prima birth of a child, or the loss of a spouse, or uh, terminal illness, or financial... I mean, the list is interminable, isn't it? And oftentimes, God doesn't explain to us, particularly right off. We, as we walk with him, we grow to understand more and more. But we're never going to get all the answers here. But in our ignorance, in our weakness, we trust him. I want you to trust him. He's shown his love for you and given you his son as your savior. And so even though you don't understand the incomprehensible ways of an incomprehensible God, you know he's your God in covenant. And thus you can walk with him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this revelation of who you are and what that means to us, Lord. It is indeed a grand and glorious privilege to know you to walk with you and to trust you. Let us grow in our knowledge, in our zeal, to search the scriptures, to meditate long on your ways and praise and adore you as you deserve. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.